0: You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. chasers light to the purveyors of pictures to all of you listening around the world this is the f11 photography podcast normally you would hear a bunch of clapping but i'm doing today's podcast at home and not at the podcast studio i am your host kevin deal notably absent your other host mr brandon gory yeah, Brandon is absent today. He is uh, neck deep in projects, and we like to keep at least one, if not two podcasts going each week, so today's podcast is going to be a little different. Yes, that's right. I'm going alone today, but that's okay. It's going to be a fun episode. The theme of today's episode is going to be your purchases that have made me a better photographer. I know there's a lot of people out there that say it's the photographer, not the gear. And that is true. However, there is gear out there that makes your life as a photographer a lot easier. So we're going to talk about that today. And I'm also going to talk about gear purchases that I was super hyped about that were big letdowns. But first, the sponsor. Harness the power of artificial intelligence with Luminar Neo. Use powerful tools like AI masking, power line removal, sky replacement, and all sorts of other powerful modules. If you're the type of person who doesn't really like to go into menus, submenus, and you just want a graphical user interface that's easy to follow, you hit a slider and it makes huge differences on the results of your photo, check out Luminar Neo. It's not that AI hype that you're seeing, it's actual AI put to good use and it will help improve your photography uh, results, at least your editing results in post. So check out a link in the description of this podcast, get 10% off your copy of Luminar Neo. You can also use the code Kevin10. Since I don't have Brandon here to just uh, chat about banter and random things, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about non-photography-related things. It's the opening day of the NFL season, so if you watch uh, football ball, uh, my Dallas Cowboys are slaying the Giants right now. Yes, I uh, I like pain. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. So, uh, I will say lately I've been more into English Premier League football, soccer, for all of you who don't uh, watch that, than I have been in the NFL. But, hey, maybe the Cowboys... uh, for the 26th or 27th season in a row. Won't let me down, but I'm definitely not getting my hopes up. All right, let's talk about the subject of the day. We're going to talk about gear purchases that I've made over the years that have made a profound impact on my photography, and I'll go into the reasons as to why, so maybe you listening uh, to this pod might relate or might be in the market for it, or may all of a sudden find yourself in the market for it because of the hype that I'm giving it. Now, some criteria that I want to uh, discuss in today's episode. As some of you know, I have a YouTube channel. My YouTube channel is focused around reviewing equipment. And so manufacturers send me equipment for free, and then I review it, and you know, I keep a lot of it, and I think a lot of it's great. I am not going to... Uh, I'm not going to name anything that I have been given for free in today's episode because I don't think that that would be fair. I'm going to talk about things I've actually purchased with my own money that have made a profound impact on my photography. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. The first thing I want to talk about is a dry cabinet. Yeah, dry cabinet doesn't sound too sexy. You were probably thinking I was going to talk about some cool lens or some cool camera or something like that. We'll get to that in a minute. But I want to talk to you about why I think a dry cabinet is a good investment. First and foremost, you should have a special place to put all your equipment. And I see all too often on these YouTube channels, people just buy like these Ikea shelves and put their $3,000 lenses on it. And it totally makes me nervous. I want a very uh, secure place to store my equipment. I want a place that locks And then I want a place that's climate controlled. And so these rugged dry cabinets, uh, that's what I got is rugged. I think you can get them at B&H. Bought it with my own money. I'm pretty sure I bought it on Amazon about three years ago. And I have a really tall one. It's about uh, three and a half, four feet tall. And I keep all my uh, Canon RF lenses in it. Uh, I've never had any problems with fungus because it's dehumidified. It is incredibly dry in there. And I like it so much that I actually bought a second one. And so having something with the foam in there, it has a shelving system, you can pull the shelves out, it has a light, it has a lock. Uh, That's definitely something that has helped me out as a photographer, even though it doesn't sound like a sexy purchase, it's actually something that I would highly recommend. But let's move on to like a sexier uh, purchase. So the Fuji X-T20. It's a camera from 2017. It's like their entry level into the XT line. And so, why would this be under my best gear purchases of all time for me? Well, I love the Fuji X series because it reminds me to have fun as a photographer. So, as many of you know who listen to this pod regularly, I am a Canon user, I shoot on the RF glass. I I make lots of money with the Canon cameras, and that's an awesome thing. I love it. But you always need to remind yourself of why you do this in the first place, and so you want to shoot for yourself. And the X-T20 really opened up a door for me that I felt was lacking in my work, in my creativity. The the X-T20 by itself, it's not a, uh, you know, jaw-dropping camera. I think it's like a 20, 24 megapixel, somewhere in there. I think it's 20. Uh, I don't even know because I just shoot for fun with it, you know? But um, I go shoot street photography with it. It is my uh, street photography camera. It's uh, also... Uh, a camera that I decided to convert to full spectrum. And for those of you who don't know what that is, uh, so every camera when it's made can see all the visible light, Roy G. Biv, everything we see with our eyes. But those sensors can also see uh, infrared and they can also see ultraviolet. Now, manufacturers will put what's called a hot mirror filter on your sensor to filter out the infrared light and to filter out the uh, ultraviolet light. And the reason they do that is because uh, you can see visible light better. So, you know, 99.999% of you who buy cameras, you buy cameras to shoot visible light. You go out and you shoot things you can see with your eyes. One of the side effects, if you leave a camera as full spectrum, is visible light stuff doesn't look as good because the infrared and the ultraviolet spectrums interfere with that. So, The manufacturers put in what's called a hot mirror filter, and that hot mirror filter is what lets your camera see visible light so well. Well, there's people out there like me who decided that, well, I wanna take a camera, maybe a camera I didn't spend a whole hell of a lot of money on, and I wanna convert it to full spectrum. So I sent my uh, XT20 off to a place in New Jersey. They uh, converted it to full spectrum. And then what they do is they give you drop-in filters, which is great because it sees everything. But it won't look good if it sees everything. Uh, It's going to look kind of cloudy. So you have to filter out the parts of the spectrum you don't want the camera to see. So anyway... Uh, I have uh, infrared, uh, 720 nanometers, 590 nanometers, if that sounds like a foreign language to you, it just basically means that I see certain bands of infrared. And then I also went out and got an, uh, a bandpass filter for ultraviolet. And so I can shoot an in infrared and I can shoot an ultraviolet. And then the final filter I bought for the camera is I also got a hot mirror filter. So if you put the hot mirror filter back on the camera, it then sees normal. And so it's just a fun camera. Like I can take it with me on vacation. It can be my vacation camera. And then if I decide I want to be super artsy and shoot infrared in a place like Italy, or maybe I'm in New York or something like that, and I just want to see a place that you know you've seen a million times. And that's that's actually one of the reasons why I fell out of, of out of love with landscape photography. Is you know you go see your friends go to um, Yosemite and they take the same picture of that waterfall that everybody takes a picture of, or they go to um, horseshoe bend and they all pull out their ultra wide and they take a shot of horseshoe bend. And so I found, I fell out of love with landscape photography and one of the ways I'm falling back in love with a uh, landscape photography is by shooting it in infrared because there's not a lot of that out there. And, and so my X-T20 has really helped me out in that regard. And so that's why I find it to be one of my best gear purchases. I really just purchased it to get me into Fujifilm because uh, I thought that it looked like a really cool system to get into for shooting for fun. And it still is. I actually now own an X-H2. At one point in time, I owned an X-S10, and I currently own a GFX100S. So my Fuji X-T20, I would argue, uh, is one of the best purchases that I've ever made. Now, let's move on to uh, one of my next purchases that I'm super uh, fond of, and that is the Spider Holster. Now, if you're not familiar with Spider Holster, uh, that's something that I actually uh, became hip to at WPPI this year. So I was in Las Vegas, you know, walking around the exhibit hall, trying to find some cool new products. Of course, I'm hitting up uh, vendors to review stuff for my YouTube channel, and I came across Spider. And what's cool about Spider is uh, they make these little holsters you can just put on your belt, or for heavier cameras, you can uh, put on, like, uh, this looking thing that looks like a girdle almost, but is that you, like, strap it on. It's kind of like a weight belt. I think that's a better better, better way to describe it than a girdle. But it's a weight belt, basically. And then on the side of the weight belt where your hip is, there's a little clip where uh, you take something and you connect it to, like, uh, the, the tripod mount of your camera. And then there's this little, like uh, this little like knob thing that sticks out and it, it latches in, uh, to the spider holster. And the reason why, uh, that is a purchase that's meant a lot to me is that as I've gotten older, I'm only 42, but I'll be 43 here in a, in a couple months. But as I've gotten older, uh, weight has become more of an issue. I shoot on the Canon RF, uh, system and I have a 28 to 70 that's like four pounds. I have an 85 millimeter that's like three pounds. And so the lenses are super heavy. And uh, in February of 2021, my buddy Gilbert, DJ Titan, who's a really awesome drum and bass DJ, he asked me to uh, shoot some video of his uh, his set. He came down uh, from Dallas and played in Austin. I was like, yeah, I, I'm, I was doing a review of the Canon RF 28 to 70 F2 and I wanted to review that for video. And so I was testing out some video on it. I'm shooting some video with it. And like the next day, uh, my elbow starts hurting. I'm like, damn, man, my elbow like hurts a lot. Well, it turns out my camera gave me tennis elbow. And sure enough, what gives you tennis elbow, like one of the side effects of tennis elbow, or one of the ways you get tennis elbow is by holding things a little over your your chest height that are heavy for long periods of time. And and all of a sudden you start getting, um, you know, tennis elbow and tennis elbow is one of those things that doesn't just go away overnight. I had tennis elbow from February of 2021 all the way through July of 2021. So it was like five months, five and a half months that I had tennis elbow and it was not fun. It was super painful. And so anyway, the spider holster, uh, you know, you look like Tim the Toolman Taylor from Home Improvement. You you definitely look like a dork. But I I think that that was the point where I I crossed that threshold of I don't care about looking cool anymore. I just want my uh, elbow to not hurt all the time. Uh, So it's part of getting old and so I do use uh, two versions of the spider holster. I use the version, the the big weight belt version that puts my R5 and like my uh, 28 to 70 on there. And it's, you know, I've got six and a half pounds strapped to my hip basically. Uh, So I have that version of it. And then they make a smaller version of it that you can just like clip to your belt, which is really cool, like your your standard belt. And I did that. And uh, yeah, and then that one uh, holds a smaller mirrorless camera. So it holds like my Fuji X-H2 or my X-T20. And what's liberating about it is if I need to make an adjustment to a light or something like that, I don't have to put my camera down. I can actually just clip it into my hip, make an adjustment to my uh, softbox or whatever I'm doing, and I don't have to put my camera down. It's awesome. And so I would say that that is uh, one of the best gear purchases I've ever made. Moving on, the Mamiya RB67 is One of my favorite purchases I've ever made on any gear, because uh, as we live in this world where we take 2,500 pictures at a session and pixels are free, I have this, uh, this belief that the more pictures you take and the less thought you put into those pictures, the less of a photographer you are. Now, that is my opinion, that you can argue with me and I can't prove you wrong. That's the beautiful thing about opinions, right? Is we can debate them all day long. But I I personally feel like if you're not connected to what you're trying to do, is it really your art? And shooting on film, of course, you've got the medium format look, which is gorgeous. And of course, you choose your film stock. And so that kind of helps your aesthetic out. But the process of shooting on a medium format film camera is just... Uh, gorgeous and I I can't describe it to you really well unless you've done it yourself and then all of a sudden you're like oh yeah I get it I do it all the time or I've done it before. You know, shooting on a mechanical camera that doesn't have batteries or anything like that it just has a bunch of moving parts that when they're machined they're lubricated correctly and they're all set up they work perfectly as a, a functioning machine. And there's there's an, there's just a beauty to that, and there's a rhythm to it. You can get into a rhythm shooting on film. And it also causes you to just uh, think of things a little differently. So when I started uh, coming up in photography, we were taught about the F-16 rule, which if you're not familiar with the F-16 rule, is basically at F-16, your shutter speed should be the same as your box speed. So if you have a box speed of um, 100, ISO 100 on your film... At f16, you can shoot that at one one hundredth of a second. If you had 400 speed film, you would shoot at f16, that 400 speed film at one four hundredth of a second. Why is that important? Well, if you just have a film camera that doesn't have a meter on it and you want to try to figure out your exposure, that's how you figure out your exposure. And now that's the sunny 16 rule. That is if it is like, you know, high noon, clear day, it's bright. That's 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 what I'm talking about when I say shoot at f16 at those particular uh, shutter speeds and those ISOs. You obviously have to uh, shift that. If it's cloudy, you need to open it up. Like just slightly cloudy, you would open that up a stop, basically. So you'd make it a stop brighter. And then if it's like a overcast day, you'd actually make that about two stops. And so, uh, and then if you're also on the other side of that, let's say it is a uh, high noon, but you're also shooting in snow. Well, snow reflects a ton of light, and so you would actually uh, close it down the other way. You'd, you know, you'd go beyond f16, I guess f22, or you would take your shutter speed and you would uh, you know, make it, instead of being one, one hundredth of a second at ISO 100, you'd be at one, two hundredth of a second at ISO 100 f16. So anyway, there's a beautiful thing about shooting that way. And I feel like when you do shoot in those types of challenging situations, it alters the way you shoot digital. And in my opinion, for the better, I have so many uh, uh, models that when I shoot them, they're like, wow, you only took like 200 shots today. And Brandon has even remarked on this channel that, wow, you only take like 200 shots during a session. And I'm like, yeah, like, because if you are truly getting better at what you do, you should be able to nail your shot in less you know, less takes, right? Like if you're trying to get to a particular shot and it takes you 2000 shots to get there versus 200, you're you're putting in 10 times the amount of work, or at least putting in 10 times the amount of shots, I should say, to get that. I don't know if you're actually putting in 10 times the amount of work because how much of that is you doing the work and how much of that is the camera doing the work? And the camera doesn't have an artistic eye, so it probably isn't going to produce exactly what you're going for anyway. You do that by learning and getting better. And so The RB67 has really reinvigorated my love for film, uh, reinvigorated my love for slowing down and shooting less shots, and that is why I'm putting it on this list. Hey, this is Vanessa Joy, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. So for my next piece of gear that I love, it's uh, not sexy at all, but my gosh, has it assisted me on so many shoots. Now I'm going to talk about the AD600BM from Godox or Flashpoint, it is an ugly ass light, but it's 600 watt seconds. It's super bright and you can beat the shit out of that light and it will produce. There are uh, countless videos online showing that light, just killing it out in the field, being, you know, traveled around the world. And what's crazy about that light is for a 600 watt second light, it's a, first and foremost, it's manual. Uh, You can't shoot it in TTL, which I don't care about. I shoot in manual most of the time anyway. But what I love about that light is this just gets super bright. And, yes, it has high-speed sync settings and all that. But what's cool about it is uh, Adorama, usually, I don't know if it's this way anymore, but, like, during the pandemic and pre-pandemic, every Black Friday, they'd have that light for $350. It's normally, like, I think 500 550 for the non-TTL version, but you can get it for $350. So it's basically, as far as I'm concerned, it's a throwaway. And I've actually had one fall over on concrete from like 10 feet up and it it did die but I've also had it fall over several times uh and not die so I've purchased three of them um one of them died and then I still have the other two but I mean I beat the shit out of that light and it works so well in the studio now I have a recently semi-retired it I'm never going to get rid of it because if I ever have any of my lights die, it's an awesome backup light. I've recently moved to Profoto, which I might as well talk about the fact that the Profoto B10 is now on my list of favorite lights. I finally, in my opinion, found the perfect light uh, from a size standpoint. It fits in my backpack along with my lenses. It's roughly the size of a like a 70 to 200 lens, maybe a little bit uh, le- like shorter and maybe a little wider, but about the same weight and all that. And so... Uh, I've been on a light kick lately. I just recently switched to Profoto. But but as much as I love the Profoto lights and, and they are going to be my future moving forward, that Godox uh, Flashpoint 8600 BM, you cannot find a better value for a light on the market. And the reason I shoot 600 watts second in the studio so much is I like fast recycle times. And so, if you're shooting at 600 watt second, uh, you can stay down at like a quarter power, uh, even if you're shooting at f8, f11. And that light just, you know, fires, fires, fires. And there's not, a, I don't think I've ever had a misfire on that light. And I've had that light for, gosh, uh, four or five years now. And, I mean, now, like I said, I have multiple of that light, and I've had them for four or five years, and I've only lost one, and that wasn't because of the fault of the light. The damn thing fell, whatever, 10 feet over onto concrete uh, because I have uh, stained concrete floors at my studio. So uh, 8600 BM, badass. If you're looking to get into uh, off-camera flash and you want to, like, go out and overpower the sun temporarily – That's the flash to do it. It's not super light, but man, that thing is like a weapon. It is. It's kind of like my RB sixty seven. Like most of the time, whatever it runs into, unless it's concrete, it's gonna win. So, Godox Flashpoint eighty six hundred BM bought several of those with my own money. Uh, And if I didn't switch over to Pro Photo, I'd probably continue buying them with my own money. And I'm never gonna get rid of them because they're just, they're there if I need them. And there may be some projects where I don't want to take my pro photo lights. So uh, love it. Moving on. Probably one of the biggest, uh, purchases I've made, not, it it wasn't that expensive. It was like 30 or $40. There's a company called Hueon, Okay. Or I'm sure they're Chinese, but for those of you who are listening, who have explored the option of getting into retouching with a stylus, you probably come across the name Wacom. You know, Wacom is like the jacuzzi, you know, cause we call hot tubs jacuzzis, but jacuzzi is an actual brand. Wacom is a brand, but they've actually established themselves as, you know, when you talk about a tablet, you talk about a Wacom tablet. Well, Wacom tablets are kind of expensive. And I thought to myself, you know, if I could get something that works like a Wacom tablet but isn't as expensive as a Wacom tablet, I think that'd be pretty cool. So Hueon makes tablets you can just buy on Amazon, get them tomorrow or even same day. They're like 30 40 bucks. and they give you a workable area. But the reason why the Hueon tablet was probably my most important purchase I've ever made for post-production is if you ever tried to micro-dodge and burn skin with a mouse you will get carpal tunnel. It is tedious, it's laborious, and it takes so much more time to do it that way. And... You think about it when you were brought up as a kid in grade school and all that, you learn to write, you learn to draw like that's what we're supposed to do. It's just if you have a laptop or something like that, you can't really do it well with your fingers. Uh, not the, not to that uh, level anyway, you can't micro dodge and burn by touch touching a screen. You have to have some sort of a precise tool. That's precisely what we write on pencils and pens, right? You need a precision tool for that. And so the Huey on tablet. I, uh, I rolled the dice on it because, you know, Amazon has a liberal return policy. I was like, hey, I'll, I'll try it out. And if I don't like it, I'll return it. Well, I like it so much, I actually bought a second one. And so I take a second one with me on the road when I'm traveling around and I edit and I can turn around, uh, edit so much faster this way. If you've ever tried to, like, you know, fix blemishes on a beauty shot where it takes up your entire screen and you see every single pore on that person's face. And you're like, gosh, I'm gonna be here a while. Well, you're gonna be here a lot less time if you get yourself a tablet. Not, you know, you don't have to get the Huion tablet. If you want to get the Wacom tablet, do it. The point is, is the tablet is the the best purchase I've ever made in terms of uh, post production. Can't think of anything better. So, go check that out. Uh, we're gonna talk about my final purchase that has changed my photography, transformed my photography that I love before we get into the things that were a big waste of time and money. The uh, for the final gear purchase that, in my opinion, has transformed my photography the most is the Canon R-System mirrorless cameras. Now, if you ask me what my favorite-looking camera is in the world uh, that I shoot on, it's the Fuji GFX 100S. The, the colors are absolutely incredible. It's just a gorgeous camera. Everything I shoot, when I nail on it, looks like a... Um, a portfolio piece it's all amazing but what makes me my money my canon r bodies and my rf glass so in 2019 i bought the eos r because that's all canon had i took so many professional shots with it i also use it on my vacation when i went to italy i've taken it all over the the, the country and shot with it and the thing that really transforms my photography was the autofocus so uh, anybody who's listening who has shot on a DSLR and some of you listening may have not moved over to mirrorless and therefore you're still stuck in this uh, focusing system where you have like a diamond that you see through your viewfinder and you have to focus and recompose. I always thought focusing and recomposing was like such a beat down because because the other thing you had to keep in mind is that oftentimes uh, when you do recompose, if you're shooting at a shallow depth of field, things start getting soft where they were in focus and it's not quite right. Focusing and recomposing has flaws. It's not. Uh, it's not like a perfect method, but it does get you through uh, some 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 issues if you are on a DSLR as far as uh, you know trying to get your focus right. And so, mirrorless, you don't have to worry about that. You have edge to edge focusing points. Sometimes upwards of a thousand focusing points. And of course, with Canon R, they have this really cool thing called uh, touch and drag, where if I put the viewfinder up to my eye. I can just take my thumb and drag it all over the uh, LCD screen on the back, and it'll move my focusing points. And, of course, that's if the autofocus, which on my R5 is a cheat code, doesn't, like, find the eye uh, to begin with, which it almost always does. The only time that ever gets kind of fooled up is if I have, uh, like... A tree branch in front of someone's eye and the branch is moving in front of their face and I'm trying to shoot through the branches. Sometimes it can trip up the autofocus. But in general, moving over to the Canon R series has transformed my photography. And it's, it's one way that uh, it has transformed my photography is because even though I still get in my head and I, I get really caught up on settings, there's less stuff to distract me from focusing on settings because the autofocus is so good and so a lot a lot of times i can just hold down the back button focus and it'll lock on to the eye and i'm like cool i don't really have to pay attention to my focus anymore and then i just look and make sure my exposure settings are good i hold it down i'm like cool all that's locked in now all i have to pay attention to is composing my shot directing the subject or the model and then that's what the camera does for me. And so I would say that, you know, probably in the last uh, decade, the biggest purchase I've made is going to mirrorless. And of course, if you uh, are on a Nikon DSLR, or you're on a, you know, I don't want, just, just Fuji hasn't made DSLRs. They got into the mirrorless game, I think. I don't even remember. But um, if you're on another camera body that's a DSLR and you're looking to get into uh, mirrorless, I mean, most people have done it, but if you're one of those like stragglers, Like, it really is one of those things that can transform uh, the way, you know, everything works. Now, I have heard some people complain that, oh, I like looking through an optical viewfinder. I don't care. I like electronic viewfinders. In fact, I prefer electronic viewfinders because of all the extra information it can give me. They have really cool things like exposure simulations. So, if I start darkening things, you'll actually see the screen get darker because it simulates what your actual shot's going to look like. So, personally, I don't think that there's really a lot of arguments for going back to DSLR, uh, if any at all, because I've found ways to overcome those two or three arguments. And then when you look on the other side, there's like 10,000 arguments as to why you should go to mirrorless. Uh, Mirrorless is also pushing boundaries. uh, So Canon, uh, because of the flange distances, of uh of where the sensor is and all that canon is actually able to make lenses that they weren't able to make before so like the rf 28 to 70 f2 before you could only make a 2.8 a 24 to 72.8 but you're actually able to squeeze an extra stop of light out of a new lens and the reason why is because of that flange distance coming up next let's talk about some gear purchases that i've really hated hi i'm jordan groby and you're listening to the f11 photography podcast Let's talk about filters. Filters are something that I have regretted purchasing. I find that when I purchase UV filters, they don't really do a good job of improving anything. And a lot of times they make things worse. So they're supposed to filter out UV light, but then at certain angles, they create ghosting. I find that if I go pixel peep, my image quality isn't quite as nice. And you know, you have to go out and buy a really super expensive UV filter. And even then the ghosting still occurs. And then you know, a lot of those color correction filters and all that, there's a reason why when you go out and you buy one of those packages on Amazon, maybe you go out and you buy a lens that vendor throws in one of those little uh, those little packs with the fake fall leather. And then when you open it, there's a bunch of saran wrap filters in there. I mean, those are dirt cheap garbage filters and they're not gonna improve your photography. You go try to shoot them on a landscape with a sunset, it's gonna look like garbage. It's gonna look like trash and it's gonna make you have to do a ton of work in post-production. And so unless you're dropping you know, $100, $200 on a filter, oftentimes it's not going to help you out. Now, there are exceptions. All my infrared stuff takes filters. All those filters are $200 a pop. And yes, they do improve things and they do make things better. I have uh, variable ND filters that are a couple hundred dollars that I use from Freewell, and those are awesome. But I find that in general, UV filters don't do a good job. And one of the biggest arguments I hear people make to buy UV filters, I do not subscribe to them. That is that it protects your lens in case you drop it. And I'm going to give you an example as I move into one of my other purchases that totally didn't pan out. And it's pretty much any backpack I've ever owned. I'm the type of person that does a ton of research. I figure out what I want. I don't really have a lot of uh, purchases on this list that I, I regret. I have way more things that I love and I had to really whittle that down and that took forever. I also spent a ton of time trying to think of things that I regretted getting and it wasn't that long of a list. But One thing that I always seem to fall out of love with is backpacks. and To this day, I've never found a backpack that perfectly suits me. It's why I've been using the same backpacks for the last four or five years. It's not that I, I love them, it's that I settled on them. And one thing that I found that I don't like about a lot of backpacks is they try to put all these secret side compartments in, or they'll put like a double layer, like it'll be like a double-deckered backpack where there'll be like compartment A, compartment B, but if there's a little bit of gap, things from compartment A can slip into things into compartment B. And and it's actually really uh, hurt me. And so I want to tell one story. Uh, my father and I we went on a uh, trek to the American Southwest. We decided we want to do the Four Corners. Uh, so we did a gorgeous uh, October trip where the leaves were changing colors and the Rockies. And we went out to Navajo land and we saw wild horses, wild stallions running around in, in the Badlands and very sacred Navajo places. We 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 saw all sorts of beautiful stuff. And. When this trip concluded, we were driving back toward Texas, and we stopped in Santa Fe, and I was super tired because we were on the back end of our trip, basically heading home. It was the day, like second to last day of like a, I think it was like a 13-day trip or something like that, and so we're at our hotel, and, you know, I had this thing where it's like, oh, I had the side compartment. It's really cool. And, you know, we'll pull over and I'll open it up. And I'll just grab my camera and pull out of the side compartment and take pictures because, you know, you start getting lazy toward the end of the trip. You don't want to keep getting out and seeing every little thing. And uh, so I was like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to like have my side compartment there and I'll just pull my camera out real quick and I'll try to shoot things from the car. So we get to our hotel and I'm like, all right, I'm really tired. Let's go to our hotel room. I put on my backpack and and yeah, this uh, 70 to 200 f4 is just rolls out of my bag and drops three feet straight down onto a asphalt parking lot and I just look and I'm like ah shit. So I pick up that 70 to 200 and my UV filter that's supposed to protect it is cracked and so is the front element. So it didn't actually protect it from a, a very benign three foot fall, it wasn't a violent fall, it just like fell kind of straight down and hit the ground, and I can hear stuff rattling around, and anyway, not only did like the IS get shot on it and everything else, it was like completely shot, I could not even get the front element off, and it, when I got home, I basically just had to like jam the whole, I basically broke all the front glass off, it was just a big disaster, and so my my takeaway from that is that uh, UV filters do not protect your lenses. If they have something like image stabilization in them, uh, that's not going to be protected by uh, a front element either, right? And so it basically turned into a paperweight. I sold it to some guy in China on eBay for like $200 for parts. It was, that was the best I could do. So uh, anyway, I had to tie those two together because faulty backpacks proved to me also that UV filters do a shit job of protecting your lenses. So my takeaway from that was don't buy UV filters. Instead, buy warranties or have insurance, and then don't put the filters on there so you can squeeze every last drop out of your lens. So I mentioned the Godox Flashpoint 8600BM is one of my best purchases I've ever made, and that's true, but they also make the AD400 Pro. And that actually goes into one of the worst purchases I've ever made. And it's not because the light is shit. It's because they decided to make a smaller battery for it. And the battery is just like not very long lasting. And so I can't even get through a beauty session using it as my key light in the studio. And so that's actually something that I never used. Like I bought it. And I just favored my 80 600 bms more because they had bigger batteries, and then they obviously put out 200 watt seconds more of uh, flash power. And so I uh, last week actually sold my 80 400 Pro, and uh, I, I'll put that as one of my worst purchases I've made because I just it's so expensive and I ended up not using it. And so I sold that guy uh, and it's not like I said, it's not a bad light, like the quality of light on it is not bad. The construction quality on it is not bad, but the battery size on it, it just didn't have enough flashes uh, at the power I needed them to be at. And so I favored my 600 BMs more. And then that thing just like sat in a case. And so while it's probably a great purchase for a lot of other people out there, it wasn't a good purchase for me. Another purchase uh, totally suckered me into it. It was like maybe Christmas of 2018, Christmas of 2019. It was before the pandemic. I remember that much. But like it's it's uh, it was me kind of getting hip to the way an algorithm sucks you in. But basically on Facebook, there was like this startup for Covered is the name of the company. I think it's K-U-V-R-D. And they make these rubber caps that you put on your lenses and you know this is a I guess a controversial thing because people are super split on really liking them or really hating them I uh, fall into the camp of I hate them and they're so overpriced and I, I I, bought like a I think I don't remember if it was a two or a four pack because I don't even like know where they are at the moment and I think I lost a couple of them because I don't even give a shit about them but I really didn't get along with them I didn't like them at all they look so cool. The marketing was so cool. The hype on it, on the uh, videos that they made, their professionally uh, put together videos look so hype. I was like, yeah, I'm going to get these for my lenses and it's going to protect them. And, you know, as far as it protecting your lens, yeah, it does. It does a good job. It does an okay job. But my issue with it is, is Uh, they stretch and, and as the, the rubber on them stretches, they're, they're more or less like condoms that you put on the ends of your lenses and then it, it works, uh, it works instead of having a lens cap because lens caps can be a pain in the ass because they fall off in your bag and then you have like a AA battery rolling around and smashing your your front element or something like that, or or your filter. I know all you people who are, who are filter people are like, well, if you were if you if you put a filter on there, you wouldn't have to worry about it. Yeah, yeah, shut up. That's why I have insurance. But uh, these rubber things, these rubber caps, these universal lens caps from uh, Covered, I just didn't get along with them well because I like to store. Uh, first of all, there are two types of people out there. There are people who like to shoot with a lens hood and people who don't like to shoot with a lens hood. And I fall into the category of someone who likes to shoot with a lens hood. And the problem with these caps is when you go on the website and you're like, okay, I have a 70 to 200 2.8 or something like that. They go, cool. This is the cap you need. Well, that's that cap, uh, putting it on the lens without the lens hood on well, I like to store the lens hood on the lens itself because you can turn around a lens hood and turn it, you know, turn it backwards, and then it saves a lot of space. So the lens hood, is, lens hood is not sticking out, and so that's how I like to store it. Well, if you use these caps, then you have to find space to put your lens hood, and it's thick enough to where you can't just put your lens hood on top of the um, the lens anymore. Even though you can't fasten it to it, you can still like maybe put it on there, but no, it, it's it's just it was too thick and after a while the rubber started stretching and you know they say they have a lifetime warranty and all that but who wants to deal with that crap anyway it got to the point where it's just like these are just a big waste of money for me i ended up not using them uh, i totally bought into the hype and that's on me you know i got i got to learn from that but let's conclude today's episode talking about my worst purchase ever so those of you who follow this channel know that i am a canon shooter i am an advocate for canon i'm not sponsored by them or anything like that but i i've spent a lot of money on their products because it's reliable and i i think that they do very innovative things uh they're a lens company first a camera body company second their optics are uh incredible and i love canon it's super reliable i love the ergonomics but it's well documented on this channel that i love canon And so one of the cool things that came out with the R7, the R3 and the R5C bodies is that they have this new smart hot shoe. So uh, hot shoes have a certain amount of terminals on them. Uh, And this has like some extra like terminals on it that I've never seen before. And what is it there for? Well, it's there for future accessories to communicate with the camera. And one of those accessories that Canon came out with was such a hopeful thing that I thought would be so awesome. And it was called a DM-E1D. And it's a microphone that is powered off your camera's battery. And so you don't have to have double A's or any of that. There's even a button on the back of the mic, which can then uh, immediately pull up your audio levels. So if you're a videographer, you don't have to assign an already existing button on your camera to pull up your, your audio levels because you have a dedicated audio button on the microphone itself. That all sounds amazing, doesn't it? Yes, but it all falls on the product not sounding like dog shit and unfortunately it is the worst sounding microphone I've ever used in my life and just for those of you who don't know I'm an audio engineer that is my background I have done years and years and years of audio engineering I've designed sports stadium sound systems like that's like my background in addition to being a photography person so I know audio really well and the thing that blows my mind about how Canon dropped the ball so massively on this is you can go on Amazon and find some generic Chinese shotgun microphone uh, you know, that rivals like a, a Sennheiser MKE or maybe a Rode mic. Uh, Something that's kind of a a knockoff of that. And those knockoff microphones actually don't sound half bad. They don't sound as good as a Sennheiser. They don't sound as good as a Rode, but they sound like, let's just say they sound 80 to 90% as good. This DM E1D like it sounded, I shit you not like 40% as good as any other microphone on the market. And of course, because this is proprietary microphone, it ended up costing the microphone was like $100 more, I think it was like three 350, maybe even $400. I don't remember because I returned it. But it's one of the only Canon products I've ever purchased that I've returned outside of I purchased a 85 f2 lens because I wanted to go to 1.2, I returned it because I wanted that extra, uh, that extra depth of field that narrow depth of field. But the dME 1d from Canon I shit you not it is a terrible sounding microphone and I do have a, uh, a review I, I did of it on YouTube if you really want to go listen to how bad it sounds but like I could not you know with all my years of audio engineering I could not get anything to sound really good through that microphone everything sounded mediocre at best and a lot of times it just sounded like trash. That does it for today's episode. I thank each and every one of you for sticking around. It's a little different format today with no Brandon. I apologize, but uh, he will be back, and he may even do some pods of his own down the road where he just does a solo pod, Uh, but we will be uh, in the studio uh, later this week, and we'll be doing a few pods for you all. I'm also going to be doing another solo pod uh, because they're about to release a new Fuji GFX 100, and so look out for that. But until next time, chase light. Not Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.